Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, fellow canophiles, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know that we've discussed a number of well-known counterculture icons on this program. John Sinclair, Yippies, Dana Beal and Abby Hoffman, LSD guru Timothy Leary, and High Times founder Tom Fursad. But some of the most influential figures in cannabis activism and counterculture history are not as well known to the public because they choose to work behind the scenes rather than out in the spotlight. One such figure was a radical civil rights lawyer named Michael Kennedy, who actually represented and supported many of the icons I just mentioned. He represented one of Hoffman's co-defendants in the Chicago 8 trial. He represented Brotherhood of Eternal Love founder Michael Randall, labor leaders Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, founding members of the Weather Underground, Timothy Leary, and Tom Fursad, from whom he essentially inherited high times after Tom's suicide in 1978. As trustees and part owners of High Times, Michael and his longtime wife and partner, Eleonora, were primarily responsible for protecting the magazine legally and overseeing its evolution and success for close to three decades, until his death in 2016 at the age of 78. Now their life, love, and legacy are the subject of a new short documentary film that premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival just last week, entitled Radical Love. Joining us today to discuss the remarkable life and career of this fearless defender of the underdogs, First Amendment, and cannabis legalization is Michael Kennedy's widow and my former boss at High Times, Mrs. Eleonora Kennedy. Eleonora, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, Bobby. Good to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So, you know, when I was doing my research online for this interview, other than a few old news clippings and many uh, very reverent obituaries for, for Michael, I couldn't find very much online about him and his relationship with these counterculture icons. I'm guessing that was intentional on his part, keeping a low profile and staying out of the spotlight. That's true. Um, while he was alive, uh, many people said, let's have a Wikipedia page. And he said, no, I don't need business. I don't want business. I don't want to advertise. Once he died, the forces came together, and it's Michael John Kennedy Wikipedia. And it's very full, many, many pages. But he just didn't want it. He wasn't like that. He used to say, we do our best work in the dark. And he was right. <laughs> we, we kept that low profile, and um, he worked very hard for his clients and was very successful. And he... 50% of his work was pro bono for mostly marginalized people, minorities, people who were victims of every kind of injustice but couldn't afford. And the other 50% was for people who had a lot of money. So he balanced this out in his own head, and um, it worked. worked for us. Sure. Well, now that he's gone, uh, I definitely feel it's important, like you were saying about the Wikipedia page, to get some of his stories and accomplishments out on the record for posterity so the next generation knows how important he was to the movement. Um, I know that film uh, goes part of the way of doing that, and, and I hope to bring some more attention to his accomplishments today with the show. Um, so since I couldn't dig up a lot of uh, information on him, I'm going to have to kind 
kind of paint in somewhat broad strokes here and rely on you to help me fill in a few of the details, if that's okay. Be happy to do that. Okay. It's my favorite subject. <laughs> sure. Um, well, one fascinating fact that I just realized about him that that I didn't know before was he was actually born in the same year as Marijuana Prohibition, 1937, which is when Harry Anslinger's Marijuana Tax Act went to effect. And I think that's just wild and so ironic. It's totally there. Well, there are no coincidences in life, Bobby. <laughs> Indeed, he was born in 37. And uh, I think it must something happened in the gene pool there in the air, the chromosomes. <laughs> but he was meant to fight for legalization, uh, as you know, first medical and then recreational. And when he did die, he had just finished a white paper, which was very big, very dry. I could never get through it, but it, it is the ultimate word on regulating marijuana. And he did it with uh, John Getman, who's a professor at, I believe, Northwestern. It's an extraordinary document. And uh, it is the answer to how all of this should be regulated because it's gone pretty wild right now. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'd, I'd love to read that. I got to get a copy of that to check it out. Oh, gosh, it could put you to sleep. But <laughs> it's, it's yeah. a very scientific document and I could never get through it. All right. But his, his goal actually was uh, he wanted to help people who were suffering. And uh, he knew that marijuana was, that plant to him was holy and spiritual and, and uh, healing. And that's how it really began. Um, and then his clients, who were victims of the oppressive government uh, for very small amounts, including Timothy Leary, including the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. I mean, way back, you're too young to remember, Bobby, but in the 60s, even the early 70s, it wasn't about the money. It was never about the money. It was about turning people on, making them happy, peace, love. All of that is not trite. That's the way it was. Summer of Love, Woodstock, Haight-Ashbury. That was real. Millbrook. Yeah. It changed. It got Over the years, it became more and more corporate. And now it's pretty much corporate in some parts of the world. I mean, there, there must be pockets, especially on the West Coast. But I'm on the East Coast, and it's 100% corporate here. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, it's drifting that way. But better to have that. I liked it when it was illegal. It was <laughs> Yeah. Have a little joint. And, and uh, now it's you can walk down the street. So, but Michael fought for that. And I must say, when, when he died, uh, not only was it medical, but I think 19 states were recreational. He was a happy man when yeah. he died. He felt this. And the New York Public Library, uh, took his archives, which is wonderful. Um, many institutions wanted it, but we wanted people to have access. And uh, they were thrilled because of all the cases he did over the years. Sure. They were thrilled that they have all his documents on legalization. So 100 years from now, when a young person goes in the way they would now and say, prohibition, what was that? <laughs> and asks about, was it really ever illegal to take a plant and smoke it? And they'll say, pull out Michael Kennedy's files <laughs> yeah. and all of his boxes. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Well, let's let's go back uh, to the beginning. I want to give a little background to everybody so they know more about. Uh, so I know he was originally from Spokane, Washington. Uh, he graduated from Berkeley and then uh, got his law degree from University of California, right? Um, right. And he also served in the Army for a while, right? Yeah. During those days, there was something called ROTC, R-O-T-C, when you went to college. You had to sign up. It stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps. And um, everyone had to do it. It was it was called the draft. 
And uh, when he began his law career, when your number comes up, they pull you out. And um, at his level, he was an officer. So he, unfortunately, from his, from his standpoint, had to go into the Army. And he was based at Fort Knox, Kentucky. He was a commanding officer for the brigade. And he felt that, you know, he... He had to do it or he would have had to leave the country one or the other. And he at the time had a child and couldn't do that. But he felt at the time he was training his brigade, his young men, so they wouldn't become victims of this horrible war. And he worked them very hard. He had the most successful brigade company commander. So it was a dark time in history, Vietnam. And when he came out, that's all he did was anti-war activity. Yeah. And uh, Now, is that when you met him was when he was in the military? Tell us about how you first met and how you fell in love. Okay, all right. I was down at Fort Knox visiting, and he well, there was a party at the officers' club, and I was invited and went and um, introduced to him, and he extended his hand. I extended my hand, and um, I, I just something happened. I my knees <laughs> buckled a little bit, frankly, and um, I fell in love in three minutes, and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with this man. I'd have walked on glass barefoot. Getting a little romantic off topic now, but that's <laughs> the way it hit me. Lightning, absolute lightning. And um, from there, it went on. And we were together for 45 years, 46 years, and we never spent a night apart, ever, not once. Wow. We worked together. We played together. We dreamed together. We had a wonderful life and good family. And... Um, it's you know that's how we met and you got and, married uh, in uh, 1968 right we did yeah. we got married and it was very strange it was during the war and uh, you know we, we we didn't have any money and uh no one did at those days i was very young and and he was young not as young but young and my this is very interesting picture this townhouse on 74th street not mine not his but my gynecologist's at a townhouse there and uh he had um he said well i'll give a wedding here for you if you want and we see that was a great idea and uh, the minister who married us was a client of michael's he was an anti-war activist he was a conscientious objector who was going to jail the next day he's a methodist minister so here we are married in the apartment my gynecologist gave me away because my father was um anti-Michael Kennedy. He was very conservative and my country right or wrong and did not believe in the anti-war movement. So I was sort of condemned and for three years, actually, and um, couldn't be at home. So that was the wedding. The, the minister being going to jail the next day, my gynecologist giving me away and, uh, and none of my family. It was pretty sad. But the marriage was amazing. The wedding mm -hmm. was not. Um, and we began from that moment. He was the staff counsel of the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee at the time. He had come from San Francisco to New York City to serve in that capacity because he was all about the anti-war movement then. And yeah. we were determined to make a difference with that, to stop that war at all costs. Yeah. And he, he was involved in so many diverse and important cases and, and had so many clients. And you I know you helped him and worked with him along on most of them. Um, he defended gay rights activists, Native American protesters, Black Panther leaders, and then later even mob bosses and, and pornographers. But, um, you know, for the purpose of this show, obviously, I mean, there's he, we could talk about his career all day, but I, I'm going to focus mostly on the counterculture and cannabis related ones because this is a cannabis history show. So, um, right. But so, guess, Bobby, we yeah. needed we, the pornographers and, and the mafia. <laughs> the money was there. We had to keep the ball rolling there. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. That's 
That's your way of Robin Hooding, the, you know, taking from the rich yeah. to help the poor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. So um, I know in uh, 1968, uh, Michael took his first marijuana-related case involving a soldier from Fort Hood named Private Bruce Gypsy Peterson, who had been sentenced yeah. to eight years of hard labor for some minuscule amount of weed. Uh, can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, well, the weed, they used that. What they really objected to is that he was opening coffee houses in the military, and they were all anti-war and pro-pot coffee houses. So they used the weed as a vehicle to punish him and put him in jail. Ultimately, uh, we got that dismissed, and uh, they called him Gypsy, Bruce Gypsy Peterson. Yeah, I remember that. My goodness. Wow. Yeah. He, he was an organizer. He was, a go- he was an organizer. As so many of the young men were at the time who had to be there, you know, the draft was a whole other time in America. And I think the reason now why we don't have a draft is because, well, I think the upper and upper middle class and upper class don't want their kids going to war. So we don't have a draft. But in those days, everybody got pulled in. So it was was tough. And they did act. They really organized when they were in there. They were terrific. The combination of the anti-war protesters, conscious objectors, and they were deserters. They were a whole group of deserters. We had to go to Sweden and the Underground Railroad of Paris during the war to help these people. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. So, so, so that that gentleman got uh, Michael got his conviction overturned. Apparently, they had only found point oh oh six grams of pot, which they I think vacuumed out of his car. Uh, it was really an absurd absurd situation, but uh, th- there was so little pot that it was apparently destroyed while they were testing it. There wasn't wasn't right. even enough left to test. It. Right. In the process, they, <laughs> they destroyed it. <laughs> so that was uh, the way that he one of the ways in which he got it dismissed, which is which is amazing. Um, and yep. there was an, there was an Another case related to Fort Hood, uh, coincidentally, uh, called the F- Fort Hood 43, which, uh, which was case. Uh, oh, favorite case. yeah, it was about, uh, I guess, a bunch of African-American soldiers who were court-martialed yeah. for staging a protest. Tell us about it. Well, this this is my when we were doing the film, when the filmmakers were here and they said, name your favorite case. I said, well, here's one. And there was a picture in The New York Times of Michael with five African-American, at the time we used the vernacular, black soldiers in crisp uniforms in Fort Hood. They were all court-martialed, and they were all going to be, their career was going to end with a court-martial and a dishonorable discharge, which in those days was horrendous. You wouldn't get the GI Bill, you wouldn't get education, health care, anything if you were found. <laughs> Excuse me. So Michael took the case, and they had six months left on their tour of duty. They had served in Vietnam honorably. Bronze Star, Purple Heart, each one of them had a wonder of that group in the picture. And <clears throat> we represented Sergeant Robert Rucker, R-U-C-K-E-R, and um, a few others. And Michael did an amazing job. And he was able to convince the government that this was absurd. These gentlemen had said, we have six months left send us back to Vietnam. Do not send us to Chicago for the days of rage to beat up on our brothers and sisters there who are demonstrating against the war. Now, this was the day of Mayor Daley, Chicago, the days of rage. And uh, this was the convention, the Democratic National Convention. And they wanted, the government wanted these black duty-free people to go there and to fight and whip and beat and whatever 
all these kids who were protesting. And they said, we're not going to do that. Okay, you're going to get court-martialed. In addition to court-martial, you're going to get dishonorably discharged. And they begged them, send us back to Vietnam. Imagine, that's how strongly they felt. So Michael was able to convince the military and the government that this is hardship beyond belief, and they let them go. But here's the really interesting part of the story. When we saw this picture, now this is so many years later, Anna said, let's find him. Let's find Sergeant Rucker. I said, don't be ridiculous. How could you find him? That's 50 years ago. And we wanted to interview him for the film. She did her search, search, search. And in the state of Indiana, there's a Supreme Court judge named Justice Rucker. And she Googled and looked it up and happens to be a black man with gray hair. And I looked at the picture in the New York Times of this 19-year-old. And I, I saw no resemblance, but she did. She said, Mommy, just call the courthouse. So I called the, the judge's chambers, and I said, it's, uh, sorry to bother you, but there's a documentary being done on my husband. And, and years ago during the Vietnam War, he represented a Sergeant Robert Rucker, and we were wondering <clears throat> if this were the same. And officiously, she said, Mrs. Kennedy, there is no connection. I've been with, this, with the, his honor for 30 years. He's never mentioned Vietnam War. He's never mentioned Attorney Kennedy, and he's never mentioned a court-martial. I said, oh, come on, I'm sorry to disturb you. I went back, and uh, we took the obituary that was in the Times, and we took that picture, and I said, do you mind if I just send these and you show them to his honor? She said, if you want. Three days later, a phone call. Mrs. Kennedy, this is Sergeant Robert Rucker. He was the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Indiana. That's amazing. I started crying, of course. He said, Mr. Kennedy saved my life, my reputation. I was so grateful. I was inspired by his courage. I worked at night. I I went to school at night. I worked during the day. I worked my way through college, worked my way through law school, became a lawyer, became a lower court judge, an upper court judge, and I'm now in the Supreme Court. And I would be honored to be part of this documentary on Michael Kennedy. Oh, I, what I, a great it's, story. Well, it's my favorite story of the whole film. <laughs> That's Number wonderful. One. Yeah. 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 Well, so he did that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, um, another case related to the Democratic Convention in, in 1968 was the uh, you know, infamous Chicago 8, which uh, yeah. Michael was involved with uh, defending Rennie Davis, who was one of the original that, yeah. Chicago 8. Uh, yeah. He was subpoenaed to appear before the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee. Right. And I, I read that Michael actually ended up getting jailed for contempt during the proceedings. What what happened oh, well, there? What was that about? Well, well he, he screamed out to the justices that they're raping the Constitution, and that offended them. <laughs> so, so off he went. He went to jail many times, and I was always, oh, God, there he goes. He liked doing that. He liked getting a feel for what his clients were going through or people who were jailed. And because he was a lawyer, there wasn't a chance of him having – being put upon the way most prisoners are, unfortunately, uh, because they always said, oh, God, let me talk to the lawyer, see if he'll do something to help me. So he, he went quite often to jail. Yeah. He'd be in demonstrations, and um, and this is what he did. So, yeah. 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 So were you were you and Michael close with the Yippies at the time? Uh, obviously, you you became close yeah. with Tom Frasad, who we'll talk about Tom oh, a little later. But what about Abby and and Jerry Rubin and uh, Dana? Yeah, Jerry lived with us in San Francisco. We had a an old we took an old building. I was always good with real estate and decor. I took an old <laughs> building. It was the former Australian 
consulate from Divisadero, and we bought it for a song, and uh, it was pretty ugly, but we made it nice, and uh, we did salons there. Dan Ellsberg came and held forth during the Pentagon Papers. It was a salon for the left, actually, and uh, it was always being infiltrated. Every party would see a few suits there. I wondered, oh, my God, who invited them? <laughs> and then we realized. Uh, but Jerry lived with us for a while. Abby lived with us for a while. Phil Oaks lived with us for a while. He was a, I don't know if you know who that mm-hmm. is. He yeah. was a wonderful folk player. Yeah. And uh, they were all gone. And uh, we we gave great parties, always with a cause involved. We raised money. People, Jane Fonda would come up from L.A. and in the old days when she was Hanoi Jane, as they say, mm-hmm. and uh, speak to the crowds. And, yeah, we always had an element of uh, good food, good drinks, and a lot of politics. And yeah. uh, these guys all lived with us for on and off. Yeah, when when Abby died, I know that uh, Michael wrote a memorial for him in High Times, and in it he described uh, the Yippie legal planning session as follows. The first time I met Abby, I was in a hotel room in the fall of 1967. He had a pot of honey laced with acid. We were all supposed to take a big <laughs> finger full of honey and sit down and formulate a strategy, and that's what we did. And I just got yeah. a kick out of that. I wanted to uh, <laughs> mention that. In well, that. You know, sometimes strategies need a little something extra to get your juices going, and it yeah. always worked. Yeah, we had a good time, Bobby. We had struggled a lot, but it was a really good time. It was it was a family. Um, all of these people, the yippies, the zippies, the hippies, uh, it, it was all one big family. And in terms of the pot culture, same thing. Laguna, the canyon. These guys would make tons of LSD and they'd pass it around, mail it around to every legislature in the country. They were bold and brave and. There's a great film called Orange Sunshine about them, and it is, they produce blue denim and orange sunshine. My yeah, represented yeah. Augustus Stanley Owsley and Tim, I can't remember Tim's last name, but there was Tim Scully and Nikki Sands. These yeah. were chemists. They were, and they didn't do this for the money. They just really distributed it. Different times. Yeah. Uh, other than the Yippies, uh, and we'll get to the Brotherhood also in a few moments, but other than the Yippies, um, the other major counterculture activist group that you and Michael were very close with at the time was the Weather Underground, uh, which were featured prominently in the film. Um, how did you first get involved with the Weathermen? Uh, we were members of the National Lawyers Guild, and in 1968, Bernadine was speaking and um, I'd say one of the conventions, it was either DC or New York, and we met her through the convention and through the guild, and we really knew we could exchange with her, we could learn from her, we could educate uh, ourselves, and she was an inspiring force, and she, Michael, became her lawyer, and we worked with her for, to this day, we are close and dear friends, and as you saw in the film, uh, we were very close. We still are very close. They came to the world premiere the other night. They came yeah. from Chicago, and it was wonderful. Yeah. For we a- believed in what they believed in, the anti-war, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-Semitism. They were everything. Their goals were the same as our goals, so we connected. Yeah. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Weather Underground, uh, they were a far-left militant offshoot of the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, uh, that broke off in about 1970. They were very controversial because unlike a lot of the hippie activist groups, they actually endorsed and employed uh, a measure of violence to achieve their political goals. Um, and they were designated domestic terrorist group by the FBI. And and did they actually declare war on the United States government, I read? 
They did. Well, it was necessary at the time because the the war was raging on in Vietnam, and it was the most unholy illegal war. It divided our country. Uh, I think 60% at the time of the country was against the war, 40% were for it. Uh, we had 65,000 Americans who died, soldiers, men and women and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. So what they did was draw attention. They kept targeting uh, what they considered objects of, well, they used the word imperialism. The war was an imperialist war. And so they would blow up various, they'd always call in advance and blow something up and it would put attention to what was going on. And they'd have a speech that would go with us and they could never find them. And then the big action was the Pentagon. They blew up the Pentagon. Um, so, as Bill said, uh, a group of young Americans went into the Pentagon, planted a pipe bomb, cleared it out. No one was hurt. No one died. The Panama, part of the Pentagon blew up. And the, the joy to the weathermen was that, unbeknownst to them, the part that was feeding the air war in Vietnam also came down, that computer. Then there was another group of young Americans who went landed in Vietnam and that was Milai, Sergeant Kelly, and they murdered hundreds and hundreds of men, women, and children. And there are pictures of that. You saw them in the film and everywhere. So who's the terrorist, Bobby? Yeah. Uh, in that situation, the person who blows up something to bring attention to a cause or someone who murders men, women, and children in a foreign country yeah, in the name of I don't know what. Yeah, and I think it's important that, to make that distinction for our listeners is that they only targeted property. They never, ever intended to harm people. Um, 100%. They yeah. hurt themselves. They blew up themselves once, but they never targeted or hurt a human being. They always did warnings, and people left, and they were certain they left, and then they'd blow something up. And it worked. Terrorism works. It's um, It brings focus. It brings attention. Unfortunately, when things come to that, it works. Yeah. Um, in the documentary uh you said we helped the weathermen in any way we could, legal or illegal. And it just struck me that, uh, you know, Michael is someone who devoted his life to the law, essentially, becoming an attorney. Um, but at the same time, he was always very willing to subvert the law. And it's it's a bit of a contradiction, uh, but it does make sense on a gut level, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little about how Michael felt about the law and, and what his relationship with it, well, with it was? Beginning, he loved his country. He despised the government, but he loved he loved the country. And Michael was personally extremely conservative and politically very radical. So when he saw this unjust war and what was happening, we were scorching the earth of another country and killing its people in the name of whatever. He really got very angry and he went at it full storm, and it happened that the weathermen worked in the same frame of mind, and he worked with them. We worked with them, and when we say legal or illegal, whatever we had to do to help them to with their goals, we did it. We, we supported them while they were underground in every way we could, and uh, we were the upfront people. He was the lawyer, and I was the lady, and that was it. Anything that was needed, and uh, as you said, to point it out in his factual they never killed anyone except themselves when they were making a bomb once in the village. The house blew up and they two of them died. But they have ne never. Now, there are movements that have hurt people and people mush them all together. Well, that's just not fair. The weathermen never, ever did that. They're not. They were not. That was not their own movement. It was not their agenda at all. Yeah. 
And um, your association with the weathermen led to you guys being monitored by the FBI so much so that you ended up going on the lam for a while as well, right? Well, yes. What, what happened is they tapped. We were in San Francisco. They tapped our phones. They watched our houses. It was harassment, but that's that's part of the deal when you're doing what we were doing. That comes along with it, and. Um, I got used to it, and one day they knocked on the door. They waited for Michael to leave for his office, and and they said, well, we know what you're doing. I said, well, may we come in? I said, no. Um, uh, they said, well, we know what you're – we want to talk to you about Bernadine Dorn. I said, no, I have nothing to say. They said, well, you either talk to us now or we'll get a subpoena. I said, do as you must. They left, and we were gone in 48 hours um, because – Here's the problem, Bobby. A subpoena in those days, and probably still, when the grand jury sits, it sits for a term of 18 months. When you're called before the grand jury to testify, you have to testify or you go to jail for the life of the grand jury, either or. You have to testify. So the only thing one would say is their name and nothing else. Now, if you are privileged, a white privileged person, the way I was, I decided I didn't want to go to jail for 18 months, and I would never testify against anyone. Not only am I Italian, but I just, to me, as much as the worst thing on earth is a yeah. snitch. And so I fortunately was able, because of my privilege, I deployed it, and we got on a plane, and we left the country uh, for that long, that amount of time until the yeah. grand jury was not sitting anymore. Yeah. Well, unlike you guys, uh, the founders of the Weather Underground, uh, Bill Ayers and Bernardine Dorn, did have to go on the lam for quite a bit longer. Uh, they were on uh, 11 years. lam for over a decade, yeah. Um, and when they, they were on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And uh, when they finally did, uh, 11 years later, decide to, okay, we, we want to come back to society in the world again uh they they of course called you and michael right away and said we want to we want to surrender right right they decided that the war the kind of war they were launching at that time was over and the vietnam war clearly was over and they thought they could be more productive being working within not within the system, but working above ground. And when you say underground, it's not like people are down under a sewer somewhere. They're living <laughs> with different identities and different names, different they have children, they carry on, they have jobs, but they're completely disguised. So no one knows who they are, but that's what underground is. But you're right, walking the streets. Um, yeah, they did that. They came back and they were professors and lawyers and they fit right into society. Yeah. Uh, and they still work to this day. They're activists whether it's the environment or or Black Lives Matter, they're devoted to anti-racism and and uh, the environment, all kinds of things. But they never stop. They'll till the day they die, they'll be activists. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, we're going to take a quick break uh, right now, but please don't go away because we'll be right back with more of Eleanor Kennedy here on Canthropology. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. 
A liberal wants to make reforms in the system. A radical wants to transform the system altogether. For a radical lawyer, the law is the field of struggle. It's seeing the law as it is and imagining the law as it could be. The law could be fundamentally transformed, serving a more humane society. That's the role of a radical lawyer. Make the courtroom a site of resistance. And there was really nobody better at that than Michael Kennedy. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, that was a quote from Bill Ayers, one of the founders of the Weather Underground. Uh, and that clip was taken from the new short documentary film about the life of Michael and Eleanor Kennedy entitled Radical Love. Joining us again for the interview is one of the subjects of that documentary, the widow of the late great civil rights attorney Michael Kennedy, Mrs. Eleanor Kennedy. So before the break, we had we had just talked about the weather underground, and um, besides the bombings that they were known for, one of the other crimes uh, for which they're best known was the breaking uh, infamous LSD guru Timothy Leary out of prison. Um, so uh, as I discussed with Travis Ashbrook of the Brotherhood when he was on this show, uh, Leary had been arrested in 1970 for possession of two joints while living with the Brotherhood in Laguna. Uh, and was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the two joints. Um, and he hired Michael to appeal his case, right? Right. And then after his appeal was rejected, uh, the Brotherhood reportedly paid around $20,000 to hire members of the Weather Underground to bust him out and sneak him out of the country, which they did, but Leary was eventually caught by the FBI and extradited back to the U.S., at which point he apparently snitched out everybody and uh, even accused Michael of being the mastermind behind the whole scheme, which kind of put Michael in some hot water for a while, right? Well, yeah. Um, actually, Michael represented him even before the two joints. He represented him on small charges. He was coming in from Mexico, and there were two seeds in his pocket in his daughter's underwear. There was a half a joint. Where they were really little, and Michael was always able to get him out. But this one case that he did during time for, um, that we were just doing the appeal. We didn't do the trial on that. Someone else did. And during the course of the appeal, Michael would be visiting him I think he was down in San Luis Obispo, if I can yeah. remember clearly, the prison there. And uh, during the course of that, he evidently made a plan and uh, and escaped, which is pretty amazing. Um, he was in very good physical condition. He claimed it was all the LSD and marijuana, <laughs> but I don't know what it was. <laughs> Green juice, who knows? Um, he did. Uh, he did, in fact, escape, and he wound up in Algeria. And uh, he was there with the Black Panthers, uh, actually, with Eldridge Cleaver, who was taken with his wife, Kathleen. Uh, they were able to live in, in Algeria. Um, and then what happened, Bobby, was that Tim, God love him, he was, he was a rascal. He loved all the things he was doing. He loved bringing forth tune in, turn on, drop out. But he also had to have his people. He had to have an audience. And there wasn't an audience in Algeria. And um, you know, people told him, do not leave. You know, it's going to be jail or Algeria. Well, I think for him, Algeria was jail. So he decided he was going to Switzerland, of all places. And he went to Switzerland uh, with Rosemary, his wife, and some friends. And um, this country, America, extradited him from Switzerland and put him back in, in uh, prison. 
And therein, the, he was trying to figure out how to get out. So he thought, maybe I could trade Michael Kennedy because he was an activist lawyer. He was winning cases all across the country. He was a thorn in the side of the government. And they'd like to sit him in jail where he can't work and let me, an old, an old hippie, out. That was his theory. So he began the process of a story. And he wove this story of how uh, Michael would be, bring briefs into him. And he would have a secret code. It was all code. Michael had a code for times and places and dates. And only he and Timothy knew the code in the in the briefs. And uh, at some point, Michael arranged, this is his theory, with the Brotherhood to give money for the escape. And the weathermen would afford the escape. And the Black Panther, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, would get him uh, in Algeria. So it was a, tri- it was a trifecta. It was three... <laughs> organizations, radical organizations. Um, in a sense, the Brotherhood was radical because they believed in freedom um, of choice. And that's the way it came down. He did indeed escape, and he decided that he would turn this on Michael and that Michael was the master <clears throat> planner of this hmm. event. So he, they formed a grand jury to investigate Michael, and he testified before the grand jury, Timothy did, and went in great detail. And he went through these briefs, page and Michael's briefs. Oh, my God. All of this was free, by the way. And here he's using it now to say this when the words is this word, that means that. And it means over the fence at a time. And nobody believed him. The grand jury didn't believe him. <laughs> and his reputation preceded him. And, and they looked at all this Michael Kennedy, his three-piece suit, lawyer, respectable lawyer with wife who was working and was social life in San Francisco. Could this guy be telling the truth? No. Needed corroboration. And there were two sources. One was his wife, Rosemary Leary. And um, the other was a man named Dennis Martino. Dennis, unfortunately, fell off a cliff uh, while he was waiting to come in to testify, I think in Spain or someplace. And Rosemary... um, Rosemary was hostile because when he was in Millbrook during the Billy Hitchcock days up there, um, Rosemary was asked to testify against him before a grand jury, and she wouldn't. And she went to jail, I think, for six months of that was left on the jury. During that time, allegedly, he was having an affair with the nanny. She came out and found that out. And when it came time for her to support his testimony to free him from prison and put Michael in, she disappeared. She went underground with a few people who cared for her, and he had no one. So no one could corroborate his story, and Michael did not get indicted. And Timothy stayed in jail, I think, for a long time. So Timothy turned out to be treacherous in the yeah, end. Yeah. Did Michael hold a grudge against him, um, or did he forgive him? Because I distinctly remember when he died in, like, 96, um, there was a bit of debate at High Times as to whether we were going to publish a tribute in the magazine to him or not. And because uh, I know, obviously, if there's one thing Michael couldn't abide, it was a snitch. And we did end up doing the tribute. Uh, I remember because I worked on it, and it was it was a fun little tribute. Uh, and I wish I would have kept it honestly because they're super rare right now. Those little inserts that we did. But so, what was my? Right. How did Michael and and Timothy? Uh, I assume they didn't really well, speak after that. Michael wrote the editorial that month. You know the way they have the second page or third page before the advertising, and he wrote it. And I wish I could remember it. I'm sure we can find it somewhere. And he basically was tongue-in-cheek. We talked about him. My old friend who was uh, an imp, a little Irish rascal and whatnot, uh, 
she damned him, but in a very gentle way. But the phone rang one day. Jim was dying, and and his girlfriend at the time, Joanna Harcourt Smith, said, "Michael, would he wants to say goodbye? Would you please? He's old. He's sick. He's dying." And Michael said, "Of course, put him on." So he gets on. He said, "Tim," I said Michael, "How are you, boy?" Land. And Michael said, "I'm good, Tim. How are you?" He said. Oh, good, Michael. He said, I just, I'm dying, and I just want you to know I forgive you. <laughs> we lived for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I forgive uh, you for not taking my place in prison. Wow. What a rascal. But he was a, he was a rascal. You just couldn't get too angry with him. <laughs> I suppose mixed. that was, was his, his own weird, bizarre way of apologizing. He knew, he must have known he was he was wrong, obviously. So, I don't oh, know. sure, of oh, course. But, no, he felt in his mind and in his heart, it was more important for him to be out with his doctrine around the world and put Michael in jail than it was for Michael to be out representing people. Unbelievable. And that, he convinced himself of that. And that's why he was trying to change places. Yeah. It's really fucked up. Well, you mentioned before we were talking about the Brotherhood, and you mentioned before that Michael had represented uh, Nick Sands and some of the other acid makers involved with the Brotherhood. Tell me a little about uh, your you guys' uh, involvement with the well, Brotherhood. Yeah. The Brotherhood, uh, I, I, they're heroic. They are a heroic group of women and men. And uh, as I said in the beginning, now in the '60s and '70s, it was all about giving it away peace, love, and they had a place in the canyon where they would manufacture. But the really good chemists, Nikki Sands was a good chemist, Tim Scully, they would always stay one step ahead. So if it's LD57, whatever the mixtures were for the, the components for LSD, and the government would make that illegal, then they would switch it. They had the ability, because they were so brilliant, to move a little bit of this or that and make it ALB, whatever, and they'd stay a step ahead so that if someone was caught with something with ALB instead of ALD, they wouldn't be arrested because it wasn't the same compound. Hmm. Very wise, but it all, you know, at one point the government was so oppressive, they came down on them because people were having too much fun. So you represented, these were uh, pioneers. They were pioneers, Bobby, yeah. all of these people. And he represented yeah. Michael Randall also, right, who was one of the founders. He did, Michael yeah. Randall, yeah. We were down south in Laguna in the canyon representing the Brotherhood, and Michael Randall was one of them, and they wanted him because he was the head of the and uh, he was the leader, married. He had about five children, four, a bunch of children, and living a good life down there. And uh, they indicted him on so many counts. So we took a house down in Laguna, because we knew it would be a long months of hearings, hearings, more here. At the time, it was called the BNDD. Now it's the DA. It was the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. So Michael called his best friend and brilliant attorney, Michael Tiger, who was living abroad. We had set up an office in Spiracet in, in France for Americans who were in trouble over there for any, any narcotics, drugs, problems. And he came over, and the two of them were whipping it in court every day they were winning all of their pre-trial motions and that really steamed up the government and these guys this bndd they were the most vicious bunch i'd ever seen in my life they were nasty and mean and they were terrifying i had a large sheepdog i was happy in the house so tiger and his wife and michael and i lived together one night michael randall came over with the wife and he was going to make us a mexican dinner now we had this house all of a sudden, there was a knock on the door, and it was one of those, I don't know what they're called, the door where the top opens and the bottom opens separately. It's a, yeah, split, anyway, yeah, There split was door. a knock. 
and Michael went over all in the kitchen cooking. Michael opened the front top and he said, it's the pigs and slammed the door in their face. They kicked the bottom <laughs> in and on their hands and knees, they came in with guns, glaring, three of them. Oh, my God. And it was, oh, it was put a little fear into make us here crazy. And they went over to Michael Brando and they took from their pocket. And I never, I, if you told me this, I'd never believe you. And they put three joints in his shirt pocket and pulled them out and said, see what we found, Mr. Kennedy? And Michael said, you, well, I'm not going to say probably what he said, <laughs> but it was pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. And they, they took Michael Randall, they handcuffed him behind his back, which you're never supposed to do. And they dragged him out. And we were behind him because we didn't know what they were doing. And we followed them down the block because they parked a block away so we wouldn't see their cars. And we heard, whoosh, they punched Michael Randall in the stomach for no reason. And Michael saw that. He started screaming at the you no good mother. He strung together epithets. I never heard <laughs> the curses together that he did. I'm going to burn down their house. I'm going to shoot your dog. Whatever. It was insane. They were so terrified. I mean, there's that sort of thing coming at you. He was a madman. They dragged him away. They then they put him in jail and uh, for these three joints, which clearly were not his. And we realized, all of us realized that you know, we're winning the battles, but we're never going to win the war down here. They are going to get us. They're going to get him no matter what it takes. And um, evidently, we got him out, you know, the next day. And we, we knew a judge who was a wonderful man down there, and he understood what was going on. However, they charged Michael with 42 counts of uh, obstruction of justice, cursing in front of women and children. There were no children. Uh, violating. They charged him with everything. And ultimately, those were dismissed. So... Michael Randall, now I'm editorializing, I guess he figured that even though I've got great lawyers and I'm winning every single motion, they're never going to give up on me. And two days later, we went to court with our briefcases and Michael Tiger and and uh, all these guys are there, the BNDD, the prosecutors, and there's no Randall. And uh, where's Randall? The judge said, Michael said, I don't know. And he said, well, call him. So we went outside and we called him up, didn't answer his phone. And we called his mother. She didn't know. We called her mother, the wife's son, didn't know. Came in and we said, no, he's late. Give him a little time. Maybe he's in traffic. And uh, it was clear mm -hmm. that he wasn't coming. <laughs> and uh, very clear. And I was fearful because um, at the time, you know, my, this impact, that raid had such an impact on, on Michael Tiger that it was physically not good for him to be there. He left and went back to France. Uh, to, evidently, Michael and his wife, Carol, and their family, they were gone. And I was left there with Michael and that dog, my sheepdog. And I knew we were the targets. So I called my father, who's an imposing sort of a mafioso character. And he flew in. And he came to court. And during the recess, he marched in front of them. Bobby, you never see anything like it. And he, in front of this row of BNDD. And he looked at each one. He came back in a very loud voice. He said, are those the punks? Who raided your house? I said, yes, Daddy, they are. And he said, okay, I got this. Oh, boy. Well, they never bothered us, but we packed up, you know, like two weeks later and left. And Randall was gone for a long time. And um, that was his his way of getting out of that. It was just they were torturing him. Yeah. Many, many years later, uh, in uh, 2011, um, after all that stuff had obviously died way, way down, uh, 
High Times invited the Brotherhood to Amsterdam to the Cannabis Cup to honor them and induct them into the Counterculture Hall of Fame. Uh, I was very mm-hmm. fortunate to be there for that, and it was a it was a wonderful ceremony, really, really great. Um, and I know Travis told me that they were hesitant to even come be recognized because they'd spent their whole lives trying to fly under the radar and not be noticed. But, right. but they right. did come. They did come and they ended up having a really wonderful time, they told me. Um, right. And during that, uh, there was this really cool um, item on the stage as part of the ceremony, which was a Brotherhood of Eternal Love a banner or a flag, uh, which I well, later learned belonged banner. to you and Michael. Um, yep. yep. Now, they I gave assume, that to us years ago. Yeah, yeah. I assume that I was a gift. I and you still have it. Yeah, you know, I, do. I, I know we've uh, I've mentioned this to you before, but uh, when the day comes when we finally get our World of Cannabis Museum uh, opened, I would love to be able to uh, borrow or, or get a hold of that for our exhibit because we're going to be doing a nice exhibit on the Brotherhood. We we just uh, acquired the surfboard replica that Travis uh, that had been made for uh, Orange Sunshine film. Uh, and we have some other items of theirs uh, that we're going to be putting in there. So maybe at some point you can uh, lend that to us and let us display it. Well, yeah, if you put it on guard next year, because I yeah. can just see the <laughs> DEA now coming and ripping that off. That's such a painful, but it's a beautiful banner. Yeah. It's really beautiful. The colors and the mandala. They had that. That was our present. And the other present at the time, they had these mandalas made for the Brotherhood. That was a symbol. And no one knew at the time, but except the Brotherhood. If you had that on, you were okay because there were so many snitches around. Yeah. And they gave Michael and I each one, and I still have mine. I don't wow. know what happened to Michael's, but I would let you uh, present that as well. The mandala. It's wow, a, that would be it's wonderful. Gold and it's beautiful. But again, Bobby, I, I, I'm. Someone could grab those in a minute. I mean, they, I don't worry about good people. I worry about bad people. No, well, whenever when it when the when the location is materialized and we finally open it, it will be very well, uh, uh, you know, under lock and key. But um, sure. I, I should also okay. mention we should also mention that Michael was interviewed about the Brotherhood for the 2016 documentary Orange Sunshine, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, the director of that film, uh, William Kirkley, is the director of the film that that the, your documentary as well. Right, exactly. When he was interviewed, when Michael was dying, uh, William Kirkley, who was unbeknownst to us, was making this film on the Brotherhood called The Orange Sunshine. And Michael, Michael Randall said to him, you've got to interview Michael Kennedy. Just, you know, just God, he's central to this. He represented so many of us. And and William called him, but many people had called when Michael was dying. They thought they'd get the last interview, and I said, absolutely not. And then Michael Randall called Michael Kennedy and said, please. And I mean, he looked so bad. He was so sick. And uh, Michael Kennedy said, yeah, okay, a couple minutes. And um, so this gentleman, William Kirkley, came with a camera, and I said, okay, I'm going to bring him in here in the living room, but you've got two minutes. Whatever you have to get on the Brotherhood, do it real fast. Well, Michael came in looking terrible, sat down two and a half hours later. <laughs> believe me, and that was Michael. Michael wanted to get his whole life out. He knew he was dying. And yeah. at the end of that, he, he used a piece of it in the film on Earth Sunshine. And then he just, just came back. Like after the he died and the, he saw the obituary in the New York Times, which was extensive, yeah. all the cases. And he said, I'd like to make a movie. And Caroline Waterlow, who was the producer, she had done 
O.J. Made in America and won her Oscars for that. She said, I want to work, I want to do a film on somebody who's <laughs> positive now. So she came on board, and that's how Radical Love was born. Cool. Well, we'll talk more about the film uh, a little later, but uh, I'm going to take another quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about Tom Fursad and High Times. So uh, stick around, everybody. We'll be right back with more from Canthropology. Dazed and Infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. What we had in common was we knew our government was full of shit. There's a big difference between condemning the government and condemning our country, which we happen to love. Just hate the fucking government. A few words there of outlaw wisdom from the late, great Michael Kennedy here on Canthropology. Once again, that clip is from the new short documentary film about his life and career entitled Radical Love. And once again... Our guest this episode is the widow of Michael Kennedy, Mrs. Eleonora Kennedy. Together, they were a counterculture power couple uh, who helped so many uh, uh, civil rights uh, icons and counterculture icons and also uh, were the part owners of High Times for so many years. Um, And that's what I'd like to talk to now, Eleonora. Um, Among the other uh, yippies and smugglers that Michael represented was also High Times founder Tom Fursad. Tom was a a unique character and an enigmatic character. Uh, When did you first meet Tom and what was he like? Oh, gosh, I think it was probably early 70s. Um, he was um, mm, he was a good human being. We could tell that just by in five minutes. And he, he was serious and quiet and committed to legalization and many other things. He was an activist. Uh, he was complicated, but uh, he had a vision. He was an extraordinary visionary. And his vision was to bring to the public who were users of cannabis, who enjoyed cannabis, give them their own little Bible. And it wasn't to convince anyone or change anyone's mind about anything. It was a Bible for people who partook. And that's how he began with it. And um, and Michael was his friend at the time and then became his lawyer um, through all of it. Yeah. So you guys were around for the for the founding, for the beginning of High Times. Yeah. Tom was the founder and the only founder. A lot of people, I read all the time on so and so founded it. Tom was the founder. That's that. And um, and yeah, we were we were his friend and represented him. And we spent a lot of time out at our house with him and um, talking and theorizing. He was a, he was an activist. He was a great great guy gone too soon four years later he was he started it in 74 i think and he died in 78 or 77 yeah um, he got in he yeah. got himself into a lot of fun trouble uh like many of the other uh activists um is there any particular uh instance or story uh, related where michael was working or helping tom uh like that was memorable well yeah there, there's a lot but <laughs> my favorite is there's the uh, muddy money 
it, they were flying in a lot into southern southern Florida. Uh, I mean, there was a time when, when it was terrifying to drive, fly into Miami because they'd fly in with the lights out at night, these smugglers. And they would go and land. One day there was a crash landing in the Everglades. And uh, no one died. That was a good news. Wait, maybe someone did die. I can't remember. But uh, the money fell in the Everglades, the cash. Everything was cash in those days. And it sat there and sat there. And it was crusted and crusted. So he rescued it. And he showed it to Michael. And we couldn't even separate. You couldn't separate the bills. But it was tons of money. And it came in with suitcases in those days, in the 70s. And, and Michael had the nerve to go to the Mint and say this, but this is damaged money. It was in a crash. Was in the, and got the exchange on it for Tom. <laughs> so it was unbelievable. Wow. Those planes used to come in at night uh, over Miami. I mean, we're very fortunate that... Uh, Thing, worse things didn't happen, my goodness. Um, and then, of course, there was there was really so many. One day, Tom fired everybody. He fired everybody, everybody. He took them all down to a place called the New Yorker Hotel. Everyone was seated there, and he said, you're all fired, every one of you. And they, I looked at Michael. Michael looked at me and said, what are we going to do? And we said, okay, Tom, now what? And we said, it'll work out. It'll work out. And little by little, he put it back together again. He was a genius. He was a, a young genius. Yeah, and he was so troubled, but uh, uh, he did his best. Yeah, and he did a lot of good. As you as you mentioned, he he took his own life in 1978. What uh, in your mind? What well, that you... was always controversial too. I mean, there were huh. there were the, the not with the yippies, but these, there was a whole radical group who said, "No, no, somebody killed him," and oh, we went around and around with that for a long time. And uh, I my I don't know if I had to, if I had to guess if I had to say what happened, and nobody knows. I think he did take his life. Um, people accused all kinds of people of doing it, but. I believe he did. I think he was suffering so much um, that he just did. No. Well, he was he was bipolar, right? He was manic depressive, and I had heard that his best friend had recently been killed as well in a, in one of the runs. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, uh, and the, the, he was under the eye of the of the government all the time. There was. But the yippies in those days it was Aaron Man and that whole gang, or the AJ Weberman. I don't mm-hmm. know. Are they still with us? Are they still? Aaron and the AJ are still around. As is Dana. Dana's still around good. too. Yeah. They were all fascinating, good characters, and yeah. uh, it was always fun to be with them. And the Pie Man, especially, that was wonderful. He pied. I think he pied Timothy one day. <laughs> That's great. For being a snitch. Yeah, he yeah. was pieing everyone. That's great. But, um, so it was a band of uh, irregulars that. But they were great people with good hearts, and and uh, there's no meanness there. They're all good. Yeah, you know one of the one of the classic high times legends that I, I've known the whole time I worked there, and and discussed this with Keith Strop when he was on the show, Keith of Normal, uh, was Tom's very unique and private memorial service at the top of the World Trade Center. Uh, what can you oh, tell yeah. us about that night? What do you remember most about it? Well, I, I it was at the top. His mom and sister flew in. I didn't know he had a sister, but there she came. Tom kept his life quite separate. When he left Arizona, he became Tom Fursad from Gary Goodson. And he kept that persona. So when he died, these two women showed up, the boy, my mother and the sister, and there they were. So we embraced them and uh, took care of them. And we all went up to the top of the, of the World Trade Center. 
And then there was an extra door to get actually outside, which was illegal. You're not supposed to go to the very top. And um, some of the people actually went up there and threw, flung some of the ashes from the top, the highest place in New York. And also people rolled a joint with uh, cannabis and uh, some of Tom's ashes, and they passed it around. And that was pretty extraordinary. I never actually... They did this with Michael's ashes, too. I have that on film. They, they sent me a film of that, the Rainbow People and Steve Hager. And, and it was him. And they, they loved him and it meant a lot to them. It was, yeah, yeah but it, it was a very unusual thing to do, frankly. Yeah. But, I, I did that as well. I don't know if you remember me recall, uh, recalling because uh, after he passed away, I was I was uh, fortunate enough. You you sent portions of his ashes to a number of people. Right. Um, yeah. And I was honored that college. you had chosen me to be one of those people. Um, and then uh, what I did was I was having a gathering at, at our home in California. And we had uh, some of our former uh, mm-hmm. colleagues from High Times there. And we went and privately I had rolled a joint with a 24 karat gold rolling paper and, right. uh, and put some of Michael's ashes in it. And we did the same. We smoked it and talked about him and remembered him. Oh. And uh, I thought that was the most fitting tribute I could think of based on what he had done with Tom, you know. so Absolutely. Yeah. But you were you were a vital part of the company for so many years he regarded you highly and uh, I'm sure he was looking down and being very very happy that he's now <laughs> a part of all of you in some regard <laughs> yeah um, I, I put a few at the uh, premiere the other night I just spread a couple of ashes at Tribeca at nice. the film festival <laughs> I kept them oh boy yeah so what what happened to High Times after Tom's death? There was a fear that uh, by many that when Tom was gone, the magazine would just go under and disappear. So what were his wishes regarding the magazine? How were they implemented? And how did you guys end up as the trustees? He really, he didn't plan for the magazine to end ever. What he said was in the year 2000, this was in 74, he had a trust drawn up. Who was ever there for 10 years in the year 2000 would get some amount of shares or something. And his son, his uncle, uh, who also killed himself, John Goodson, um, he drew this up. And um, it was in 74, it was drawn up, and it was to, it was to kick in in the year 2000. And um, But he, at that time, that was just a plan, but I don't believe he planned to kill him then when he started the magazine. I really don't. I think he just, the pressure from the government put him over the top or under the top. Um, so that went on, and he we was very generous every month. It said normal money. So we thought, let's try to keep it together. It's you know Michael was there, and and some of the good people well, who worked at the time, and they all wanted to keep it together. So we kept it rolling, and it rolled and rolled, and it went to an incredible, enormous amount of publishers and editors, and yeah. on and on and on. But um, and it got straight now. It was never there to make tons of money it was there because it was, it was a family for many years and it um it hung together and then we developed cannabis cups and, and it came digital and website it, it just kept growing and growing in products and yeah and whatnot and it became a big family and i think people had a good time and got on and especially at those cannabis cups yeah. oh my goodness. <laughs> they did and then amsterdam so it, it worked on its own. You couldn't kill it. Couldn't kill with a stick. Plus, Bobby, it was the only game in town. We had advertisers. Where were they going to advertise? Vogue? 
good housekeeping. <laughs> Everyone was advertising with us. So the what ran it for us was a lot of advertising money and circulation. At one point, it was like three hundred thousand, in the way long ago in the late seventies, and that's a, that was big. It was big circulation. Yeah, and considering we couldn't get in big shops at all. These were all little bookshops and all across the country. It was wonderful. We had a bus once that we took across country and went to every little mom and pop shop and made by 10 or 12. And it was just a completely different time. Now it's, as I've been saying, corporate. Yeah. It's, no. it's a sign of the times. It was it was it was an amazing place to work and and amazing. Uh, I mean, and like you were saying, bringing especially when we were bringing the Cubs to the United States, that was a crazy time because we didn't know, never knew if the government was gonna come bust us or or you know, no one had thrown a big giant cannabis event in the United States like that before. Um, yeah. And you know, our our mutual friend Rick Cusick, former associate publisher of High Times, has said to me on more than one occasion that if it weren't for Michael's leadership and the legal cover that his presence afforded the magazine, High Times times would never have survived uh and i believe that absolutely i do too i do too michael was fearless absolutely fearless he would go up against the government on every issue he'd fight tooth and nails and and he also represented anyone who was in trouble in the office and many several were yeah. over the years yeah. he took care of them and uh, no he was fearless he just grabbed him he won every case for high times and some of them were pretty morbid and he won every one of them yeah i i don't know about all the cases that were he was involved in the one thing i can think of that is the most well-known one would be the operation green merchant which was a very trying time for the magazine when the feds busted a lot of the magazine's advertisers and their customers basically i would think in an attempt to starve high times out of existence right like cut off our advertisers that's what they were doing, and uh, it was pretty awful because the money wasn't coming in, and the, the government knew that that's what was running it was the advertising. And but what was the heroic, heroic staff? Everybody took a cut. Every, Michael, for the first ten years, didn't take it. They took a cut. Every single person. They hung together, and Michael said, "We're going to get through this." But you know, nobody talks. Everybody walks. That was always his, his expression. We got through it. We got through it. And they gave up, and all the advertisers came back. I can't fault them for pulling out because they were getting busted, the yeah. advertisers. So, uh, well, but it was the sign of the times. They tried everything to break us, but they couldn't do it. Michael was fearless, Bobby. He was fierce and fearless. Yeah. What a stand-up guy. Could you think of a proudest moment that you have related to High Times, or one, or do you know of what one of Michael's proudest moments related to High Times was? Hmm. Well, he was very close to Lester Grinspoon, who you, of course, know yeah. well. And um, he, when Lester was Lester was sick for a while, and when Michael did get the Lester Grinspoon Award, that was that was a high point, very very big high point. But the recreational first recreational cup which was in denver colorado (laughs) that was a moment that was a moment we went out there with our usual staff and all of a sudden there were three-hour waits to get into that building there was i couldn't i've never seen so much money in my life they were buying 
hoodies and hats and cups, anything. People were so happy to be celebrating the first recreational cup. That was the first stage. And that he just glowed from that. He thought, oh, boy, this is it. Now they, it's tilted. You can't the tipping point. You can't go backwards. He saw the future and it was green. He saw medical people being taken care of. He then went to Jamaica. He flew down there to, between the Rastas and the other group and settled all those differences. He was able to bring the first cup to Jamaica. So those are moments that, that he felt very, very successful and very gratified that he hung in there and uh, he had a great staff great great staff and they supported him and it all happened but uh, i do think that first cannabis cup was meta the recreational was extraordinary for him yeah it was like i said it was an amazing amazing experience to work there for as long as i did and uh be part of that family and be part of all those amazing events and just make those memories and be part of history, really, which is we were making history. And it's it's pretty, pretty amazing to have lived through that and seen all that happen. Yeah, they were, you, all, you all were pioneers, yeah. really pioneers. And uh, they did it at great risk. There was great risk at the time. Just being a judge. I mean, the way we had to move that around, it was extraordinary. All of you were so brave and courageous because you had a mission. You knew that it should be legal. You fought for it to be legal, and now look look at what you've accomplished. It's extraordinary. You know, it was it was uh, as much as we were really putting ourselves on the line, being out there uh, on the intake crew, like accepting the entries and doing all that stuff, uh, right. operating in a really gray area, very gray legal area there. Um, oh yeah. As as scary as as we had moments that were kind of scary. The one thing that kept us going was knowing that Michael Kennedy had our back because we knew if anything went down. He would be right there to help us, and that, there's 100%. that was uh, really bolstering. You know, that makes you feel like okay, even if things do go a little sideways, uh, we're probably going to be okay. You know, and, Whole, wholeheartedly, you were his tribe, all of you. Yeah, and he yeah. felt completely responsible to take care of you all. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. So uh, now we get to the sad part. Uh, on January twenty fifth, two thousand sixteen, Michael passed away. He was seventy eight years old. Um, one of my other former uh, colleagues, Chris Simonek, who did a wonderful job with the obituary, wrote. Um, yes, beautiful. He wrote that for 42 years, Michael Kennedy provided high times an impenetrable legal shield that has allowed us the freedom to expose the lies behind the war on drugs and to recover the truth about the cannabis plant that generations of opportunistic politicians and morally bankrupt enforcement agencies and fact challenged scientists have attempted to expunge from the public record. He was our mentor, our counselor, and our friend, and his. His passing has left us with a sadness we can scarcely express, uh, which is very, very true. And uh, I will say, though, at the time when Michael passed, I was actually upset with the management of High Times uh, when that happened because I, I had been fired two months prior and I was, uh, you know, still kind of raw and fresh uh, wound. But I chose to put those feelings aside and come to the wake nevertheless because because of the reverence that I felt for Michael and the fact that I knew that he really didn't have anything to do with that decision. No, of course not. And you know who did, which will be yeah. not be mentioned, but you yeah. know who did. <laughs> and then after Michael's, uh, following Michael's death, Normal established a new annual award in his honor, which is very nice, the Michael J. Kennedy Social Justice Award to recognize progressive individuals working to advance the cause of social justice in America, which is which is wonderful. I know you were involved with that. You you were help helping to introduce that award and present that award. Who are yeah, some of the people yeah. that have won that award? Well, uh, let's see. Um, the first year was 
Jerry Goldstein, who's a great activist lawyer out of Texas and has been fighting for legalization for many, many, many years. And then there was uh, Bernadine Dorn, who was a social activist. That's when Tom Morello came and uh, he awarded his great, that was very oh, exciting cool. award, his Rage Against the Machine. He actually made up a song for on cannabis one for the day. That award was correct. She was a social activist. It wasn't directly cannabis, but a social activist is for freedom all across the board. Uh, Michael Tiger, who's the best constitutional lawyer in the United States, um, who else? Lester Grinspoon last year was Lester because it was we had yeah. COVID and we could no one could be in person and his wife accepted it uh, digitally. She was yeah. uh, gratified. We had a beautiful plaque made that we shipped out to her. And this year, I don't know. Do you have any ideas, Bobby? <laughs> I'm not sure. We could we could talk about that. I'll, I'll send you some ideas. I'll, I'll send you an email. Good. You know, after Michael's death, uh, I, I have to say, you know, things at High Times definitely changed pretty quickly and dramatically. Uh, you stepped down from your leadership role. The company was sold. Um, it's now an entirely different company and brand than what we all uh, fondly remember. Um, and I'm just wondering, are you still involved with the company at all? And what are your feelings about the direction? Um, no, I'm not involved. I resigned uh, about six months ago from the board. I'd sat on the board for some years after Michael died, and um, I really wasn't doing much. They moved to uh, Los Angeles, so I really didn't have any input. I was just a name. I was an exhibit, so I did resign, and um, I have nearly nothing to do now. No, yeah. no input. No, nothing. They're off. They're on a. Uh, they still do the cannabis cups, and and uh, they're based in LA. But I have nothing to do. Yeah. No. So since you're not involved with High Times anymore, what pursuits have you been devoting your time to in the past few years? Well, I've been very passionately involved with the environment, and I work with them. I've been working in human trafficking with the United Nations and uh, putting on some seminars around the world. We did that. Um, and I'm you know, I'm a mother, a grandmother. That keeps me busy. I'm on the board of the Central Park Conservancy. I just devoted to the 843 acres that Trump has not been able to get in Manhattan and build anything on. So I do that. And we're women's rights, (laughs) black liberation, black lives matter, whatever's happening at the time. I like to be involved. It keeps me going. And I'm honored that uh, I would still be able to do things like that. I'm healthy. Thank God. And uh, my personal passion are horses. I love horses. So other than that, once you're an activist, you're always an activist, an old activist, Hmm. but I'm an activist. Yeah. We never give up. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the film like we've been talking about. Um, I know I know that it had its sold out premiere last Thursday uh, in New York City uh, by the really cool Hudson Yards uh, Public Square outdoors uh, as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. I saw the photos and it looked fantastic. And I need to ask you. So I noticed uh, that in the photos, uh, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd was there and he was actually also at the wake. And when I saw him at the wake, I was totally starstruck. Uh, And that doesn't happen to me often because I've met a lot of bands and celebrities but i mean pink floyd is like you know way up on my list uh so i just have to ask how do you know roger waters (laughs) he and michael were friends and uh he was devoted to my they were just really good buddies they could talk they could talk they had a lot in common politically and when um when michael died there he was i i told that part is so foggy to me i i don't remember any of that 
that funeral and I was so devastated through it all. Yeah. But I know there were lots of people and I have all the I have the death book with all the all the condolence calls and actually um High Times filmed the entire funeral because oh, wow. they knew I wouldn't be paying attention. So I've watched it since then, and I've seen a lot of people. I had absolutely no idea were there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he came and and he he said this film will be on his wall for the rest of his life, and that really just hmm. Roger Waters was that's, really that's very nice. noble to say that. Yeah, yeah. I admi- I admire him a great deal, not just because of his music, but because of his political activism as well. Oh yeah, yeah. that's an important part of him. The music, I don't know, yeah. but the his his politics are what I care about, of course. Yeah. Well, I wish I wish I could have been at the premiere, uh, obviously, but I did have the opportunity to see the film at home. Um, uh, William was kind enough to send me a link, and I thought it was Good. beautifully executed, touching, inspiring, and 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 sad. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that I got pretty choked up at certain moments, especially uh, especially at this one line towards the end of the film. Let's listen. I'm 78. I've lived a phenomenal life. And what I loved about it most is I was never afraid, not once. Because if we don't rebel, if we don't stand up, no one will. Our babies won't learn how. I was never afraid, not once. Not uh, even once, right. That just yeah. blows me away because I've been scared of some things in my life. I can't imagine <laughs> having the kind of... Uh, you know the the balls forgive my french <laughs> that he had because <laughs> because uh he just really was um you know an amazing amazing person i just talking about him it's a little misty he was such an important he was my life actually an important part of my life he was it we were partners and he was my my it was everything my <laughs> favorite date my mate my everything yeah yeah um, and the thing, one of the things I find most fascinating about your story is that somehow you both managed to be simultaneously radical outlaws and respected members of high society at the same time. <laughs> and that's a pretty wild balancing act. I don't know how you pulled that off. Well, it's kind of schizophrenic, but it allowed me, my that part of my life, that other part, allowed me to be able to move in, in my clandestine part. So yeah. It was uh, it was important, but for him to go up against the government for as many years as he did, he had to be fearless. He took them on whenever, completely, yeah. no well, fear because they see it. It's like they they see fear and you're finished when they smell it. Yeah, and well, they I, do. I hope that I hope that at some point in the future, my only criticism of the film, which I loved, was that it's too short. So I hope that in the future that mm-hmm. they'll be able to expand upon it and do a feature length documentary because there's so much more to the story. Yeah, they have a lot of interviews, as they say, in the can. They're making it into a 90-minute one. This was a taste of the short doc, and this will go around to various film festivals. Then they'll expand it and do the 90-minute one, and there's talk of doing a 12-part series on Netflix. Who knows? That's in their hands. Film is something I know nothing about. So they're so good, William and Caroline, we leave it up to them. Right. Do you know where people could can see it if they want to watch the film? Is it available? Well, interesting. Uh, the New Yorker magazine, which Michael loved, and they have a whole documentary stable, we say, of extraordinary progressive documentaries. And they uh, bought the distribution rights. So when the film festivals are over, I would say in the, probably in the fall, they're going to stream it. And uh, 
going to stream great. it live. Wonderful. It'll be great. And they'll be they'll be do a big publicity push out for that. So people will be able to just tune in New Yorker documentary series. Great. In the meantime, we'll definitely post a link to the trailer so people can get a taste of it. Um, great. And uh, so yeah, let me just say for the record uh, to in, in closing that Michael was without a doubt one of the most fearless, intelligent, inspiring men I'll ever know. Uh, a true badass and your grace and your heart were always such a wonderful compliment to him. Uh, the two of you together were such a force to be reckoned with. You, you have lived truly remarkable historic lives. Uh, I'm very grateful to have known him and I'm very grateful to you for speaking to us today and sharing your amazing stories with us. Thank you so much, Eleanor. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. And that's going to bring to a close this episode of Canthropology. If you'd like to check out the trailer for the film Radical Love, uh, we will be including a link in the episode description of this podcast, and it will also be posted on our Facebook and YouTube pages. For more information about the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and please click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.